going, y'all? Hey, hey. Thanks for joining us this evening for tonight's Criminal Justice Live Talk. I'm Darren Wallace. Talking Push Black. It's all good. <laughs> and I'm Bree, um, a writer at Push Black. And thanks so much for joining us. Yes, yes, yes. All right, y'all. So tonight we're going to be discussing or continuing our conversation around COVID relief as it relates to our carceral system today. So we know during a pandemic where over a million people died, the police were given priority over important needs like universal health care, stimulus money, and much more. And this is just one of the many reasons why we need to defund to abolish. So with that said, today we're going to continue this conversation from last week about police funding and pandemic relief, specifically discussing how exactly the pandemic continues to affect our communities, how major cities, police departments misuse pandemic relief funds, and most importantly, alternatives we should all know about with regard to pandemic relief funds and the history of mutual aid. So with that said, let's just jump right into it, try to understand how the pandemic has affected Black communities thus far. Um, Bree, can you just share a few stats with us around how this pandemic has actually affected us? Maybe muted. I was muted. All right. <laughs> um, yes, of course I can. So, um, yeah, we just want to dig into a report uh, that we found during uh, the preparation for this talk tonight um, from the Black Coalition Against COVID. Uh, so in their report, it's a two-year assessment. It's called the State of Black America and COVID-19. So I just want to give you a little, um, a little stats of how the pandemic has affected our people starting from 2020 and how it's affecting us right now. Um, so Black Americans experienced a disproportionate COVID-19 burden, as most of us know, in the early months of the pandemic and beyond. It continues. Um, so beyond the burden of actual infection, hospitalization, and death, Black Americans experience uh, significant economic, social, educational, and behavioral health crises. Uh, so the severity of COVID-19 among Black Americans um, was the predictable result of structural and societal realities, as we know, right? Um, not the differences in genetics, as a lot of people try to claim. Um, Black Americans face discrimination and bias when seeking COVID-19 related healthcare and early vaccination eligibility guidelines threatened equitable access for Black Americans. And right now, right now in 2022, the coalition's data found a few points um, about how the pandemic is still affecting us. Um, and this is just important. We just want to ground the conversation in this um, before we dive into more. So there's been um, a concerted effort and target partnerships often led by Black Americans, which has resulted in more equitable access for certain COVID-19 uh, resources. So this looks like uh, cross-sector coordination, um, public and private partnerships, and most importantly, community and faith-based organizations stepping up and making testing and vaccination accessible, um, along with PPE equipment um, for our people. Uh, the second point is educational and economic uh, interventions striving to limit longer-term harm from COVID-19. So this looks like resources directed to schools to support safe reopening, um, to narrow the racial gap and opportunities for um, in-person instruction. This also slowed the widening achievement gap for Black children. 
Um, and the temporary expansion of the child tax credit uh, was an economic intervention that estimated to reduce poverty among Black children by 50%. Um, So really helpful for our people. And um, another point is that inequities in long COVID, which we're currently experiencing, which is the long-term symptoms that can emerge uh, months after infection, um, are emerging for Black Americans still. So this looks like because we had a higher burden of COVID-19, there's an anticipation that continued disparities with long COVID will affect our people. Um, In January 2022, we started the year off uh, with Black Americans experiencing the highest rate of hospitalization for any racial and ethnic group uh, since the inception of the pandemic. Mm. And last, uh, Black Americans are facing significant behavioral health changes as a result of COVID. Um, So right now for us, this looks like um, sharp increases in anxiety, depression, and substance abuse because of those pandemic stressors like economic insecurity and job loss. So evidence shows that Black Americans are more likely to report experiencing anxiety and depression and or depression um, because of the pandemic compared to white Americans. So don't let nobody tell you that the pandemic didn't affect us and isn't still affecting our people. Wow. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much for breaking that down, Bree. Um, for sure. Yeah, there's, there's still a few kind of COVID deniers um, out there, you know. Um, so yeah. thank you for making these, these impacts very real to us. And I'm kind of just sitting with the behavioral challenges that you just mentioned, like the, mm. the rising depression and anxiety in our own communities. Yeah. Um, this really makes me think of... Um, this notion of a uh, shock doctrine, which we're actually going to get into next. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So let us know what shock doctrine is and how has the state and private sector historically exploited crises? And how can we see this pattern of exploitation at play in the U.S.'s uh, pandemic response? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Um, you know, you know, I really find the phrase shock doctrine is a great conceptual container that really allows us to see like the overarching direction of certain regressive policies specifically enacted during moments of national catastrophes such as COVID-19. So shock doctrine really centers the exploitation of national crises, disasters, or upheavals to establish controversial and questionable policies while citizens are too distracted emotionally and physically to really engage and develop an adequate response and resist effectively. So all the behavioral challenges that you just mentioned, Bree, is a part of like this shock doctrine program, right? Um, so a little bit of background about this term. It actually comes to us from journalist Naomi Klein, who wrote a book by the same name. Um, for those who may be more interested or more visual or audio learners, there's actually a, a wonderful documentary by the same name by Naomi Klein available on YouTube for free. Um, But the books in the documentary, they're really an investigation that expands at least four decades of history. I mean, from Chile to Russia to Baghdad to the U.S.'s response to New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. And what she found was that there's this this cycle of this brute tactic of systemically using public disorientation. So all the rising anxiety you mentioned, Brie, all the rising Mm -hmm. depression you mentioned, um, this tends to follow like this kind of collective shock, right? And this shock could be caused by wars or coups or a pandemic, right? And the shock is used to push through radical pro-corporate measures. And this is actual an official economic doctrine titled shock therapy. This actually came to us out of the University of Chicago by economist Milton Friedman. It's very right wing, right? Um, but what we find is that this is still at play today. So Naomi Klein actually wrote this 2020 essay titled Screen New Deal, 
Well, she really compels us to think critically about the role of big tech corporations such as Facebook and Google and Amazon in the global fight against COVID-19. But what she notices is that rather than providing technical solutions to like this global health crisis, this turn to technology or big tech really signals the emergence of a pandemic shock doctrine, the mm -hmm. result of which is the creation of privately owned digital surveillance apparatuses that track and trace and really store our every move. Mm -hmm. So another important term to really think about alongside shock therapy and also how this pandemic aid is being used is disaster capitalism which is what we're seeing during this pandemic. Yeah. Um, and that's really like the use of these cataclysmic events to advance these radical privatization combined with the privatization of disaster response itself, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I came across a pretty startling stat, Bree, that really kind of underscores this idea of disaster capitalism and shock therapy. So you want to take a wild guess how much money billionaires have kind of made since the pandemic has begun? <laughs> mm, I know it's a lot. Um, yes. I'm going to say like somewhere in the like tens of 20 billions. 10 to know. 20 billions. That's a great guess. They're already <laughs> billionaires. Um, so no, they actually, their wealth actually rose by 1.7 trillion, 1.7 trillion since the beginning of this pandemic, right? So that's a gain mm -hmm. of over 58% since this all began. Wow. Now, add to this the fact that recent government data shows that after the government terminated pandemic relief programs, millions more Americans, especially Black Americans, began mm -hmm. to struggling to survive. And all, this is an estimate about roughly four in 10 Americans say that they're actually having difficulty paying their bills. And this is like a nearly 50% increase since last spring. Right. Right. So just in thinking about shock therapy, just kind of tie a bow around it. Um, it's really important to note that by capitalizing on crises such as COVID-19, Naomi Klein argues that this disaster capitalism complex really exists as a whole new booming economy, right? And this is really like the violent combination of a whole past 50 years of radical economic programs that have been incubating within our government. Um, so I hope that gives like a big umbrella overview of how to understand how this capital has been flowing since the pandemic began and how to make sense of all this disorientation that we're experiencing because of it. Um, but with that said, Bree, I'm wondering if you could kind of make it clear to folks who are joining us today, how exactly have major cities managed COVID relief funds? Yeah, so um, we'll start in Atlanta. In Atlanta, police used over a half a million dollars in pandemic funds to buy aerial drones and automated license plate readers and a mobile precinct. I didn't even know that was a thing. Um, one of the most frightening things um, about the automated license plate reader specifically, um, basically these are cameras that are sold to law enforcement, largely homeowners associations and businesses. And they can automatically record when a non-resident vehicle drives into a community. Um, and then they alert police to the, with these cars to a hot list. Um, we know just from the sound of that, that could be really, really dangerous for our people. Um, so mm -hmm. that is what Atlanta PD was doing with money that should have went to helping people. Um, in Chicago, 60% of the CARES Act funding, which was $281 million, went to the police department. In Hawaii, police logged fraudulent overtime to take CARES money and they spent over $150,000 on a robot police dog. 
In Pennsylvania, it gets, it gets worse. 61% of the rent and mortgage relief fund went to the Department of Corrections payroll. In LA, they spent roughly 50% of their first round of American uh, rescue relief um, on the LAPD, 50%. Um, and so with all of those startling stats, um, had this money actually gone to rent and mortgage relief, stimulus checks and accessible healthcare. Um, many of the thousands of deaths, um, particularly of our people could have been avoided. Um, we know that we were dying at disproportionate rates. And if we had this money flowing into our communities, a lot more black lives could have been saved. Um, yeah, and so speaking of some, uh, you know, of the, the way that the pandemic has really affected us, what the police were doing with these funds that they shouldn't have been doing. What are some alternatives, Darren, that we can um, tell the people about? Oh, great, great question. Um, yeah. Here, I want to uplift to our audience members the Black to the Future Action Fund. Um, for those who may be unfamiliar, the Black to the Future Action Fund is actually a 501c4 that works to transform Black communities into constituencies that builds Black political power in cities and states. So together, they work to enact policy that improves the lives of Black people and to elect Black legislators with progressive values who move progressive policies. Really, really important. And together, they work to ensure that Black people have what all of us really deserve, right? Dignity, safety, and power. Now, we learn through the Black to the Future Action Fund Recovery Plan for Black America that Black people represent just 13% of the country's population, but nearly 30% of total coronavirus cases and 19% of total deaths. So just to reiterate, um, for folks who may still be uh, in denial, simply put, we are dying at higher rates than any other group in this country. And with over 60,000 Black lives lost, nearly half of our small businesses are permanently closed, y'all. And think about the daily burden of Riley, rising unemployment, insecure housing, when thinking of this, our communities really demand swift, sweeping, and aggressive action, right? Now, I want you to think about those dark lease stacks alongside this recent bit of irony. Three, I don't know if you heard about this, but um, hmm. President Biden actually recently delayed his scheduled announcement of his proposed $37 billion crime prevention plan, right? This was delayed because he was diagnosed with COVID-19, right? Um, I don't know how to... Yeah, I can't yeah, think of a better definition of irony than that, right? Well needed. Um, yes, indeed, <laughs> yo. But I want to point us back to the Black to the Future Recovery Plan because they lay out some very clear and specific and aggressive demands for the next round of COVID relief. And they argue that this package must address the economy, healthcare, housing, and democratic rights. Today, we're just going to dig in about three of these. So let's just start with the economy. What should we be demanding of this COVID relief fund with respect to the economy, right? So the Action Fund, the Black to the Future Action Fund, they demand that our government puts cash directly into the hands of people, no less than $2,000 monthly, right? So more specifically, they're also asking for the restoration of the supplemental unemployment insurance to $600 a week. They ask or demand that our government cancel student loan debt, $50,000 minimum per borrower, yeah. And they're also demanding priority loans and support for all Black-owned businesses in the next round of PPP. They're asking also to pass retroactive hazard pay and the Essential Workers Bill of Rights, which is really important for our people. Um, frontline workers are disproportionately Black and Brown folks, right? So this Essential Workers Bill of Rights would include a broad and inclusive definition of essential workers that includes any worker who cannot telework 
or who the state or local government mm -hmm. deems to be essential during the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, also in thinking of the economy, they also demand expanding social security payments, expanding and making permanent the child tax credit, which was actually just canceled by Congress not too long ago. And this is something that I think is really important. Um, penalties for price gouging essential items, right? Cost of living is going up, shot through the roof. We're looking at you, Exxon and Shell, BP, all y'all. Yeah. Um, we should be demanding penalties for like, again, this shock doctrine, this exploitation of this catastrophe right now. Yeah. Sorry, I don't I don't mean to throw you off. Someone actually asked us, um, I don't know if I'm pronouncing your name right, Dean Connor. Um, what are the consequences to them for using these funds? Um, and I think one of the things you just named um from this plan for Black America could be a consequence, right? We should be hitting them where it hurts. They are doing price gouging, but you know, they they should have to pay for that. Not yes. us. No, no, I think that's a great response. What can we do? Yes, demand that they actually recompensate for all the exploitation that's been taking place since the pandemic began, right? Yeah. Um, yes, so, so many demands, but just forming a demand in and of itself is one step in holding these groups accountable, right? Figuring out what it is we actually demand for our communities. Yeah. Thank you for that question. I hope other folks kind of chime in with any other kind of demands they would like to see for holding these folks accountable. Um, but let's just take a look at healthcare because there may be some here that may be generative for our audience. Um, so the Black to the Future Action Fund and thinking of healthcare, they demand free testing and coverage for COVID-19 treatments for everyone. It's mm -hmm. ridiculous we still don't have this two years since the pandemic, right? Yeah. Um, and also thinking about like how folks have kind of capitalized off the response to the pandemic, free testing just seems like a, a, a simple and much needed solution for all of us. They also argue for ensuring racial equity in COVID-19 vaccine distribution. So specifically, this looks like prioritizing allocation in states and distribution plans center racial equity, right? And by doing this, they're really trying to mitigate health inequities. And this includes providers with a track record for reaching diverse populations. But this also needs to address equitable allocation within certain priority groups, right? So this includes nursing homes and essential workers, and again, those who are disproportionately affected, so black and brown folks, right? So again, the vaccine must be offered 100% free. And this is very, very interesting, Bree. We were just talking about this before we hopped on the call. They're demanding a national database of free testing centers. It's ridiculous how it's almost like a board game just to kind of find a testing center today, right? We're two years yeah. into this pandemic. So there needs to be a national database where folks can access this, right? Definitely. So here they also, in thinking about healthcare demands, they include national proactive messaging, right? A whole campaign that addresses our country's racist and white supremacist history with uh, vaccine injustice, right? Specifically targeting communities of color, which uh, they're hoping this can counter misinformation while highlighting vaccine safety and efficacy, right? Because there's a lot of misinformation still floating around there. So there should be some intentional campaigns to address this, right? Right. So now, uh, lastly, I want to talk a bit about their housing demands, because often people kind of overlook housing when thinking about its role in public safety and just how housing has been affected by the pandemic, right? Um, so the Black to the Action, oh, Black to the Future Action Fund, in the demands for housing, they include safe housing options for victims of domestic violence and multi-generational families of essential workers. Mm. And they include this very aggressive but much needed demand to cancel rent, mortgages, and evictions 
and public utilities and internet costs. So quite specifically, this would look like a moratorium on all public utilities, including internet, until the economy recovers, right? This also includes rent, mortgages, and eviction moratoriums for those who've lost their jobs due to COVID-19. And this includes accruing interest and taxes. And this also, they want to incentivize landlords to actually keep people in their homes until the economy recovers. Now, I came across this tweet um, felt important to kind of uplift by political anthropologist Eric Reinhardt, um, because he really shared this powerful analogy that I think really makes all these demands, but more specifically with regards to housing, just crystal clear. He says, with the extra 37 billion Biden had just announced that he planned to give US police to supposedly improve public safety, he could instead use that to provide, listen to this brief. Instead of giving 37 billion to like police departments across this country to think about public safety, right? He can instead provide every single unhoused person in this country with $67,000. $67,000, like literally, like you could wipe out homelessness with just the 37 billion he wants to give the police departments to improve public safety. Wow. um, I wanna raise a question to our audience here. Um, We at Push Black, we really wanna ask you, which option do you all find will increase public safety more? $37 billion for supposedly 100,000 more cops or $67,000 for every unhoused person in the country? Which would you find more productive for producing public safety in our country? Um, and just lastly, in thinking about these demands with respect to pandemic aid, um, I just wanna say that there's really no justification to justify increasing funding for punishment in a nation that's historically invested the most on it. Mm. Almost every police reported crime is at or near historic lows. Right. This is according to every, adalo- every available data source, including reports that come from police themselves, right? Mm. These crimes are at a historic low. And we can really see through these demands that there really is no sense of public safety without a comprehensive approach to, pub- to public health. Um, okay. Oh, I'm sorry. What's up, Bree? I was just going to say, so they are literally overlooking, ignoring the data that's out there, that's been out there, that crime is at an all-time low, and that we don't need 37 million go- billion, sorry, going to police. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's just wild to me. It's Yeah, it's wild. They could literally wipe out homelessness overnight, um, and they don't think, like, houselessness affects public safety or public health, um, yeah. it's just ridiculous. But just sticking with this kind of public line of thinking and producing public safety and public health, one term often comes up, uh, which is mutual aid. Um, I noticed through these demands from this group, but also many other groups, it tend to be demands kind of levied at the state and kind of private sectors. I'm yeah. wondering if there's something that we can do in our own communities to kind of produce a sense of public safety and public health. And here's where mutual aid kind of really appears to us. And I'm wondering, Bree, if you could kind of just break down what mutual aid is for our audience and how can communities use this notion of mutual aid to become self-sufficient? Yeah, um, of course. Before I jump into mutual aid, I just wanted to read a few comments. People answered um, to your question um, about the 67K. Uh, So someone said the latter, which is housing the homeless folks, unhoused folks. Someone said, of course, housing the homeless. Someone else said, I vote 76K to the public. Um, Someone else said, the police don't help. They perpetuate the problem. 
Um, we need to police ourselves like we've been doing for the last 20 years plus. And we can go straight into mutual aid on that note. Um, so with all we've just learned about how the police have recklessly used pandemic relief funds, it's essential that we talk about one of the ways our communities have always come together to support each other, um, and that's mutual aid. Um, so mutual aid has always been key to Black revolution and survival um, for decades and generations. So one great example that most of us know about, but if you don't know, uh, the Black Panthers Free Breakfast Program is a great example of how mutual aid um, benefits our communities. So uh, the Black Panther Party realized that our children weren't performing well in school because they were hungry. And so this was interfering with their concentration and getting their schoolwork done. Um, so they did something about it. They had 36 chapters across the country and they were feeding 20,000 low-income children. In 1969, the administrator for the U.S. National Lunch Program confessed that the Panthers were feeding more low-income children than the state of California itself. Oh, wow. So mutual aid is powerful, impactful, um, and it works. Uh, mutual aid has soci societies have been around since 1787 in northern cities. Members basically pay into a fund with a guaranteed promise of aid when needed. Um, that's how some of them work. Um, so from food to skills training to real estate, we've always used this. Uh, one great example is the New York African Society for Mutual Relief. It was founded in 1809, and they were really prospering in the 1950s. Um, and what they did was assist widows and orphans monetarily. They paid burial expensive for their expenses for their members, which is something I know we could still benefit from. Um, and they served as a brokerage house to help folks buy real estate. Whoa. So. Mutual aid can span every part of our lives, food, real estate, everything. Um, we can help each other um, and mutual aid is a way is a way to do it. Um, and one more thing about mutual aid, it works so well. Y'all know white supremacy do what it do. It works so well that they once banned it. So in 1842 in Maryland, it was actually a felony to join mutual aid societies. So that lets us know all we need to know right there. Mutual aid is the way, um, and it's a common misconception among a, lot of, among a lot of people, right, that mutual aid and charity are the same thing, and they're mm -hmm. not, and I want y'all to know how they aren't. Um, unlike charity, where sometimes you just hand over money to an organization and, you know, you hope it ends up in a good place doing something good for somebody, mutual aid differs greatly. Um, it centers community. Um, we're right there supporting each other, and mutual aid recognizes that systems like capitalism, racism, and ableism are what force people, our people, to struggle. So it's a really powerful way to build solidarity among us. Um, so the best part of mutual aid that everybody needs to hear is that we can all do it even without money. Bringing medicine to a newly disabled or sick friend is mutual aid. Watching your neighbor's baby is mutual aid. Yeah. Sharing books with the kid across the street is mutual aid, and it can work anywhere. So when, you know, as the government and police do, misusing funds, funds going to them that should be going to us, mutual aid is something we can lean on to lean on each other um, and, and be self-sufficient because yes. that's the goal. Yes, indeed. Thank you so much for breaking that down, Bree. Um, like literally, uh, I think I read once that the, uh, the WIC program, women. An infant children program was directly developed 
based off of the Black Panthers model of free breakfast programs. Yeah. Like, I literally grew up with WIC. So, like, literally because of that mutual aid society and the work that they did decades ago, yeah, uh, we were able to kind of survive today. Um, thank you so much for uplifting that. And for folks joining us who may just be learning about mutual aid, I encourage you all to kind of check for mutual aid groups and societies in your own communities. And if you find there's a need that's not being met or if there's not a resource or not a mutual aid group that's kind of providing the resources that you feel your community directly needs, see if you can connect with other folks who have overlapping concerns and create your own mutual aid group. Because we see, as Bree just kind of broke it down to us, this has been a very successful model in the past for allowing our communities to survive. And we really hope to see this thrive and continue further. So thank you so much, Bree, for sharing that. Yeah, and I wanted to hop back in the comments and share a few. Um, so just to your point, uh, Darren, um, someone else in Pearson Wesby said they also came up with WIC and she said they were the bomb. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. All right. Um, let's see. Someone said, I think they're talking about the money. They give it to the police in war, but not to the taxpayers who need health insurance and food. Exactly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um. Yeah, let me see. Yeah, I think I read some of them. Yeah, we got a lot of comments today. I wanted to go back and highlight some of them. Yeah, um, oh, someone else said they've done all of these mutual aid. Somebody, thank you, Rhonda Larry. She dropped uh, a link uh, to um, a hub that has a bunch of different mutual aid resources. All right, all right, thank you. Somebody said they didn't know that the Panthers free breakfast program was the model for WIC. Um, so, yeah. Yes. All right. We're all learning. So, yeah, that's what we're here to do. Connected with one another. Yes, please. Let's continue this conversation in the comments, the yeah. text, the email, all of that. Thank you all so much for participating. Yeah, thank y'all. And so with all that we've shared about the pandemic's F, uh, effect on our people, how police misuse police uh, pandemic. Ooh. Let me start over. How police misuse pandemic relief and relief alternatives for our people. We must leave this conversation knowing that defunding the police is only a small piece of this whole abolition pie. No correlation between police funding and public safety exists, especially as police have proven to be a public danger, particularly to us. Um, abolitionists have a different view of what causes crime. In the world they imagine, America would spend much more on education, healthcare, and infrastructure, and nothing on police departments as we currently know them. So we wanted to close y'all out on that. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Bree. Hey, y'all. I'm Darren. Thank you so much for joining us. And please stay tuned for our further conversations. We look forward to you all engaging, and we appreciate all your comments. So thank you. See y'all next week. Bye. Uh -huh.